Business News Power Hour. Well, we've got an hour of power coming up for you on a day when Jacob Zuma, former president, has been, well, told he's going to jail for 15 months. We'll have more on that story in a little while, talking with Karan Singh. He is from Corruption Watch. Also tonight, big surprise, 91, the asset management company whose founder is on the board of NASPARS, where he's the lead uh, independent director, has issued a statement to say they are against NASPASS's proposed transaction or share swap. We'll have lots more on that subject with Stephen Nathan and uh, Delphine Govender, who was the coordinator of the opposition to that transaction. Also tonight, John Mania, the uh, Economics and Finance Minister of the Western Cape Government, will talk to us about the ports issue and what's being done to fix the port of Cape Town, as well as what Amazon.com is doing investing in Cape Town. And we'll also hear from one of the crusaders against corruption in the corporate sector, uh, Stephen von Koller, who today issued summons of one and a half billion rand against four people who used to be part of that group and are being blamed for the uh, malfeasance that occurred there. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Justin Rowe Roberts has been watching the markets today. Justin, what's been happening? Great day for the All Share Alec with the All Share up 1.5% to 66,800. The Rand was slightly weaker against all the major currencies to 14 Rand 37 cents to the dollar, 19 Rand 88 cents to the pound, and 17 Rand 08 to the euro. Gold is sharply down at $1,754 an ounce. A Kruger Rand is trading at approximately 26,300 Rand. Brent crude is up at $75.50 a barrel. And Bitcoin is surprisingly strong given the negative sentiment around regulators, trading at around 520,000 Rand. In the U.S. markets, um, in the U.S., the markets have been incredibly resilient despite inflation and lofty valuation concerns with all the major indices at or near all-time highs, that being the Dow Jones Industrial Average, S&P 500, and NASDAQ. And following on from yesterday's conversation, despite the leisure and travel shares coming off on the local bus as a result of the new lockdown measures implemented to curb the spread of the Delta variant, cruise liners and airlines came off sharply uh, in the U.S., with Wall Street traders pricing in somewhat of a resurgence in cases, despite most of the world's developed economies having progressed well with their vaccination programs. If I have to look at the price action on the JSE today, as I said, great day for SA Inc., Lots of retail therapy, mass smart buster price, pick and pay, true words, the Fashini group, all uh, 4.5% or or greater uh, today. And the banking shares doing unbelievably well despite a stronger round. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Thank you, Justin. And now it's on to our flash briefing. Former South African President Jacob Zuma has been sentenced to 15 months in jail for contempt of court. Corruption-tainted Zuma has consistently refused to appear at the Zondo Commission of Inquiry into state capture. In a scathing ruling, the Constitutional Court justices said it would defy logic to impose a suspended sentence in response to what has been a direct and calculated assault on the judiciary and South Africa's constitutional democracy. The government estimates that more than 500 billion rand, or the equivalent of 35 billion US dollars, was stolen from the state during Zuma's rule. At least 40 witnesses have appeared before Zondo, linking the ex-president to the looting spree. Zuma, who the ruling party forced to quit in 2018 to stem a loss of electoral support, has denied wrongdoing. Zuma wasn't present for Tuesday's ruling. He has five days to present himself to the authorities. Bloomberg reports that in the event that Zuma fails to hand himself over, the police must take all steps that are necessary to ensure he is delivered to a prison to start serving his sentence. The severity of the third wave of coronavirus infections in Johannesburg and the rest of South Africa's commercial hub of Gauteng may be due to a comparatively low rate of previous infections. This is according to a study of samples collected from blood donations in South Africa's nine provinces in January and May. 
which show that Gauteng had the second lowest prevalence of COVID-19 antibodies. South Africa's foreign direct investment inflows narrowed to 6.1 billion rand in the first quarter of this year from 16 billion rand in the fourth quarter of 2020. This is according to the Central Bank. EOH Holdings is suing its co-founder and former CEO, Asher Burbot, and its former chief financial officer, John King, for 1.7 billion rand in damages each. It is also pursuing several other former executives. These lawsuits come amid revelations of widespread corruption, BEE fronting and tender rigging at EOH. EOH has been struggling to rid itself of the history of widespread corruption at the company, including kickbacks to win lucrative tenders. That was your Biz News Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, visit biznewsradio.com. More than 10 years ago, there were those who felt that Jacob Zuma should be going to prison. Well, he might be going, or at least that's the uh, court's findings. But let's understand the legal part of this. Karam Singh is Head of Legal and Investigations at Corruption Watch. He joins us now. So we're all getting excited about Zuma going to jail for 15 months for contempt of court. Is that feasible? Is he actually going to end up behind bars? Well, thanks. Thanks so much, Alec. Um, it, it would appear so. Uh, you know, prior to this judgment coming out, I also had my my doubts that this day would ever come. But it would seem, at least in terms of this uh, uh, contempt case, uh, quite unique case, that uh, that President Zuma has an obligation to uh, present himself to a police station, either in Nkandla or in Johannesburg, and uh, begin a, a sentence of incarceration. How soon? It, it's according to what the court said, he would need to present himself at one of these police stations within the next five days. So uh, I think this, is, as, as soon as that process starts, then uh, the judgment is uh, is executed. Wow. Is it a little like Al Capone? They couldn't get him for murdering people. Uh, eventually got him on his taxes. The, the, the thought did, did cross one's mind, you know. I mean, uh, uh, the, the legal processes that uh, former President Zuma has been involved in that uh, uh, predate his uh, time as president, as you mentioned, you know, go back over a decade. There was a long period where uh, charges were dropped and there were the cloud over his head and he said he wanted his day in court. And then he spent uh, every ounce of his energy trying to avoid that day in court. So, you know, he's not going to court for his involvement in the arms deal. He's not going, uh, it's going to prison rather. He's not going to prison for his role in the arms deal. He's not going to prison for his uh, overseeing an era of state capture, which has been a sort of systemic uh, period of corruption that we, that has got his fingers all over it. He's going uh, to prison on a technicality, on a on a contempt charge, related to his uh, failure to uh, to respect the 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 judgments of the court. I mean, it's it's also you know if you look at the the opinion of the majority, there's also something you know they 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 point out the extraordinary nature of this case and the aggravating circumstances that that flowed from former President Zuma's uh, you know bold. Uh, uh, unjustified attacks on the judiciary, you know, so there's a climate that's been created by um, the rhetoric from Zuma and his camp, which has aggravated this situation and, and placed the constitutional court in a position where they feel they don't have, didn't have another choice. What happens when he does go to jail? So let's just say in the next five days, he must present himself, he gets locked up. Can the other charges then be levied, uh, brought against him? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't forestall any other legal processes that are either uh, in process or could be envisioned. So, for instance, if there are recommendations coming out of the Zondo Commission that uh, former President Zuma needs to be investigated for overseeing a, a criminal a organized criminal enterprise, then he would have to face those charges. The the the, the, the case involving Talis, uh, the, the, the arms deal case continues, whether he's a criminally accused. This is, uh, um, you know, not uncommon. There are a lot of people in prison who are in for one thing and they're still uh, in process for something else. So in that way, it's not extraordinary. Many South Africans will be scratching their heads and not quite believing this yet. When will we be able to believe that the former president who has been blamed for so much will actually be serving a sentence? 
Well, I guess suppose you know they say a picture is worth a thousand words. So I think it'll be that that moment where where he presents himself to the Encondola police station. I'm sure that they, you know, we we remember uh, when Tony and Genny went to prison. There were marches organized. There was a big march, including uh, prominent people in the Western Cape ANC. I'm sure we'll see something very similar organized by the Zuma camp. I think I've seen a tweet already from one of his daughters saying we will escort him to to the prison gates. So um, there's still quite a lot of drama and political theater to be played out. I think there is some fear uh, given uh, previous uh, previous scenes around, um, you know, a private militia, you know, that could be around his house that could, uh, could uh, prohibit police from trying to handcuff him. So, you know, the rule of law has been placed under under incredible strain. It's been tested. And I think uh, as we see this process on, on playing out, it'll continue to be tested further. Karam, what happens if Zuma does not present himself at a police station in the next five days? I think it, it was mentioned in, in, in the judgment. It would involve activating uh, the Minister of Police and the National Commissioner. Um, so, you know, they, they've been named in the judgment as uh, officials that would need to take action in that moment. So, um, you know, the, the, one of the themes that runs through the judgment is the idea that, uh, that nobody is above the law. Uh, it's an extraordinary case, uh, but that President Zuma isn't above the law. So uh, we would expect to see the same processes that would happen when uh, when someone's been convicted and they've been out on bail and the police have to go and collect them. Um, it'll be something that'll play out something like that, I, I would assume. And if it doesn't, could we be plunged into some kind of constitutional crisis if the Zuma allies uh, in the cabinet side with him? It, it's conceivable, Alec. It, it is conceivable. I mean, I, I don't see um, political forces, cabinet officials lining up behind him, but there could certainly be an attempt uh, to use extra extra judicial means, uh, uh, the use of the MK vets, uh, other uh, others out there that that su- support the former president who who may be carrying arms uh, uh, coming to his defense to try to stop this, and that would be. That certainly would be a, a, a legal crisis, a constitutional crisis, uh, which which uh, would 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 really put us to the sword. From corruption watchers, from corruption uh, watchers' perspective, is this a huge breakthrough? It's a it's a breakthrough. It it it, it is a, an incredible statement for accountability. So um, you know, the cloud hanging over President Zuma is is extremely long. He's never faced any real accountability. He hasn't been uh, convicted previously, despite the case going on for years. He didn't present himself to the Zonda Commission to give his side of the story. He had numerous opportunities to do that. President Ramaphosa has gone before the the Zonda Commission. Others, uh, including former Minister Gagaba, who've been implicated in wrongdoing, have gone before the commission. Uh, and, and, you know, even in, in terms of responding to this case, the contempt he showed by not filing papers, uh, uh, you know, shows, a, a, you know, a real, real uh, egregious kind of attack on, on the judiciary. So, yeah, I think I think it's an absolutely uh, um, important historical event uh, uh, happening. Uh, and hopefully it's the beginning of, of greater accountability and, you know, maybe. Maybe it's the beginning of that turning of the page that we've heard about for a long time that a, that a lot of people still feel skeptical and in some cases cynical about. From a global perspective, in Brazil with their Operation Car Wash, uh, nobody really believed it to begin with. But when Lula da Silva was sentenced to 12 years and one of the richest uh, people in construction, Obadah, was uh, sent to jail for 19 and dozens of other politicians as well, the Brazilians finally started believing. Might this be a Operation Car Wash type moment for South Africa, opening the gates to other prosecutions? Absolutely. I mean, I think the the Brazilian example is significant. I think there's a lot of similarities between the corruption challenges, the developmental challenges, challenges around poverty that Brazil faces. So I think it's a good example. You know, whether other prosecutions will flow from this, not necessarily, you know, this is a very unique case. Uh, you know, he's going to prison for contempt. Um, the types of prosecutions that that you're talking about now are prosecutions linked to 
the MPA being able to prove criminal conspiracies, um, being able to turn key people into state witnesses like we've seen in the VBS case. So, um, you know, we haven't seen the, the MPA uh, uh prosecute, uh, uh, successfully prosecute, uh, sitting politicians, uh, you know, since, since the time of Jackie Salebi. Uh, so yeah, you know, the work is really still cut out for law enforcement, for the MPA to be able to do successful prosecutions in terms of corruption. But certainly symbolically, this is, this is critical, uh, and takes us in a, in a new direction. And from the way the rest of the world views us, how might this impact? You know, I, yeah, I, I would like to think that that it would it would give some indication that South Africa is dealing with its corruption challenge. You know, so we've heard incredible rhetoric, uh, you know, really uh, important words, uh, important developments in policy, uh, the rebuilding of institutions, the entire uh, record of the Zondo Commission. It gives an indication that South Africa is trying to to deal with this and and dealing with it in a way that other countries haven't. I mean, to see President Ramaphosa s- sit in front of the the sitting uh, the acting uh, uh, the chairperson the uh, deputy chief justice and subject himself to that type of questioning is is not uh, you know something that you would commonly see uh, any of his peers in the executive around the world do uh, and lots of them have cases to answer to so yeah i, I think um i think it's it's a positive message to the global community that south africa is taking this seriously um but you know there's a still still a lot of work that still needs to be done Karam Singh is the Head of Legal and Investigations at Corruption Watch. Stephen von Koller is the Chief Executive of EOH. He's a, a, well, a former banker. You, and we've said this before, Stephen, enough times, but after today's announcement that you're now gunning for the former executives at EOH, you must have thought at some point in time that uh, all of this, had you known before you joined EOH, would you have joined them? Yeah, Alec, it's been a long, long journey, um, and uh, it had to be done. I mean, the the underlying EOH business was a was a good business. One of the reasons why I stayed, or two of the reasons why I stayed, one is, you know, EOH was very systemic to South Africa. We sit in the middle of, we did, you know, SASA, COJ, Swanee, Itikwene, uh Home Affairs, uh, SAPS, DOJ, and all the financial services companies and the telcos and the retailers and some of the mines, you know. Uh, so first of all, there was an issue just in terms of corporate South Africa. Uh, and uh, secondly, you know, we employ over six and a half thousand people, you know, all of whom that are there uh, largely, you know, are um, honest, hardworking, incredibly intelligent people with families and uh it would have been a travesty that a small group of people could uh, ruin their lives and also put uh, SA Inc. at risk just because of uh, being silly. Mm. Uh, that small group of people you've now identified? Yes. I mean, we we reported, I think, uh, back in 2019 when I, I, I did the July you know, post-ENS uh, um, um, Africa conclusion, we talked, I think, about 46 people that – we had to make a decision on the board who are the people that uh, are worth going after in terms of obviously um, level of involvement. And so we divided everyone into level one, level two, level three uh, um, of those 46 odd uh, people. And um, then we had to make a decision because clearly we don't have infinite time and infinite resources. Otherwise, we might have done it differently. Stephen, you've been around at the upper echelon of South African business for long enough to know that many, many, many of these malfeasances get swept under the carpet. What was it about EOH? What was it about you that you said, no, not this time? Yeah, there was the main thing, I suppose, is that uh, if you wanted to save the EOH business and the jobs, Etc. Uh, uh, and remember, I went there because I wanted to create jobs because EOH had a great program for unemployed, um, skilling them up in the RCT business. And as you know, that was one of the, the presidential uh, um, 
workflows, if you want to call it, that's come out in this for our council. And I thought that would be an awesome thing to get involved in, etc. And so when it when it happened, and once it was public, I, we really didn't have a choice as a board. We debated it heavily with the Michael Katz of the world, the Martin Kingstons of the world, and sat and said, what do we do? What is the best thing to do? And um, if we did not go into this transparency, credibility, liquidity streams that we were talking about, uh, I don't think we would have survived. It was quite interesting when you go and, you know, we must have done, I must have done in 2019, up until now, obviously more 19, beginning of 20, over 100 hours of presentations to corporates, to OEMs, their risk committees, their compliance officers, their boards on what we're doing. And it's quite clear that if you want to be cleared, if you want to show that you've changed, you need to know what went wrong. You need to have put in place uh, policies, procedures to try and prevent it going forward. So you've rectified where the weaknesses were. Three, you need to have identify the perpetrators and you have to show action against them. And three, you have to have settled any, um, a four, you need to have settled any, uh, um, I suppose, claims relating to what you find. And if you think about it, we've done all four of those now. Mm. So um, in the National Treasury blacklisting process, they look at those four things. In the SEC, DOJ, they look at those four things. And so when I spoke to my customers, they were quite clear that if we delivered on those four things, then they're happy there's new management, new board, and we can split with the past. And we've seen that in the customers coming back now, giving us multi-year contracts. So in hindsight, the strategy was exactly right, but we were sort of forced into this position in a way. So is Treasury uh, giving you the green light again? Yes, I mean, we've had that for for some time. I mean, BLSA was the same. We went, we showed them, we were transparent, we gave them all the information, we told them what we we're going to do, and they've just been watching and making sure that we 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 do it. But if you think that the KPMGs, the uh, McKinsey's, I think even Transnet and Eskom and Bain were all suspended by BLSA, we were never suspended because as soon as I found out about it, I went to BLSA, if we do this, is this you know good enough? And um, um, we got the, the yes, and we did the same with National Treasury. And so unless there's something else that, you know, comes out or we don't deliver on or, you know, then um, as far as I'm concerned, we have done enough from what the National Treasury asked us to do. And the Microsoft licenses, which were removed, is there any progress on getting those reinstated? Yes, um, progress is, is relative. We now have communication with them, but it's, it's still one way. When we did the Zondo Commission, obviously all that information was then made public. And so from a legal perspective, I was then able to share it because it was available. So we've had a communication. We've given them all the information. They're dealing directly with ENS. I, I prefer to stay out of it. So it's totally transparent. So they'll go through through their processes and then, you know, when they're ready, they will let us know. But that is a big step forward in a way uh, that we're now communicating again. But, you know, who knows long term. So what happens now to Asher Bobot and those close to him? Well, um, the four that we are directly uh, ex-EOH employees, we're going after clearly. I mean, what uh, the lawyers have said is that the damage is suffered by EOH due to their actions uh, and uh, the evidence they've got was approximately this one and a half billion. Uh, and so that's what you have to claim. And it's, claim, it's about you have to prove damages to yourself. And um, so um, it's, it's about the damages. It's not about how much money they've got or how much you can get back from them. It's just purely you have to prove that there were damages you you as a legal entity suffer damages. And I think this is important because, you know, clearly the board has a fiduciary duty to the shareholders who clearly were big losers in this, in this whole process. 
and um, and so this is why they felt they had to go, you know, through a process to recover at least something for the losses suffered by EOH. David Mania is the Western Cape Provincial Minister of Finance and Economic Opportunities, a man on whose shoulders many South Africans' future hopes lie. I, I, David, I'm not exaggerating there, but with the semigration to the Western Cape, to the belief that who knows where the Western Cape will end up, but certainly uh, as an outlier to the rest of South Africa, people are hoping, many people are hoping, that the economy of the Western Cape can continue to outperform. And I guess that's in your remit. But starting off on the whole story about the South African ports, I know you have investigated this. Uh, It was a while ago that the report came out to say that South Africa's ports are amongst the worst in the world. Surely it can't be that bad. Well, the the World Bank, as you said, quite uh, fairly recently uh, released a report on uh, container performance and set out uh, an index. And the port of Cape Town, if I recall correctly, was the 347th, uh, if you like, most efficient port when it came to uh, container uh, performance, which, of course, uh, is uh, dismal. Now, to be fair, I think, uh, to the Port Authority, uh, the the data was drawn, I think, in uh, roughly about June last year when uh, we were at the height of the pandemic and where, to be frank, the port was in uh, real trouble. Uh, but regardless of the, the index, the truth of the matter is uh, it, it supports the general conclusion that there are significant uh, port inefficiencies uh, in the port of Cape Town. How do you address them as a provincial minister? Be, I suppose different if you were the Minister of Transport in the National Cabinet, but how, what wriggle room do you have? So we have, um, Alec, you, you're quite right. I mean, we're constrained by the fact that we are, are not national government and the port, of course, uh, is uh, within the the remit of national government, but despite that, we've we've leaned in. We've set up a port stakeholders uh, workshop uh, where we have uh, pulled in uh, all the stakeholders, be they national government, local government, uh, provincial government, private sector, and the private sector. The whole, all the stakeholders in the the, the port logistics chain uh, and. Uh, we have, I think, uh, I think ch- achieved quite a bit by simply collaborating with uh, different uh, spheres of government towards, I think, a common goal uh, of uh, achieving greater port efficiencies uh, in the port of Cape Town. So you're moving in the right direction? Uh, so I, I do think so. The, the, you know, I've been an outspoken critic uh, of the of port efficiencies because of course it is a handbrake on uh, the economy especially the the export economy and the competitiveness of the economy in the western cape but i do think uh, that uh, we we are starting to move in the right direction and i say that for two reasons uh, i have to give uh, valile dube who is the newly appointed ceo of transnet uh, port terminals credit he has implemented a a short-term plan to improve port efficiencies, which does seem to be paying uh, dividends. The port is really focusing on on five measures. Uh, They've certainly uh, done a lot to improve stakeholder communication, regularly meeting with all the stakeholders. They've started to improve terminal efficiencies by, for example, uh, uh, bringing in uh, four new rubber-tired gantries, They've started to uh, increase the utilization of rail from landward ports like Belcon. Uh, they've started to deal with uh, truck congestion by implementing a new uh, booking system. And uh, at the end of the day, they're starting to uh, improve back of port efficiencies by, for example, extending uh, operating hours and starting to explore night runs. So uh, I have to give uh, you know, the Port Authority some credit. The there have been uh, short-term measures or measures implemented in the short term, which I think are starting to improve uh, port efficiency. But at the end of the day, uh, I think uh, what makes me 
possibly more optimistic than I've been in a long time about the port environment is the announcement made by uh, President uh, Sora Ramaphosa last week, of course, that uh, the they would be that the Transnet uh, National Port Authority would uh, be established. And you know, if you cut down to the chase, what is essentially, I think, now finally being proposed. Uh, is a new model where essentially Transnet will be the land owner and there will be uh, space for private sector port operators in ports uh, across South Africa, which in my view uh, is a, a, a huge step uh, forward in South Africa. So maybe that horrible report from the World Bank uh, might have a positive outcome after all. But there are a couple of other things that are going on in the Western Cape that that require uh, maybe your insights. The whole story with Delta Airlines, what is happening there? Are they coming? Are they going? Are they being kicked out? Are they? Uh, what, there's much. It's much confusion for those of us who haven't been following the story closely. Just by way of background, I mean, uh, you know, Delta Airlines, uh, I mean, applied for a triangular route, so they would be flying essentially from Atlanta uh, to Johannesburg and then through to to Cape Town, and. It appears that the, the the Department of Transport are uh, opposed to, to 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 this proposal, but we don't quite understand why. We think it has something to do with protecting the the, the domestic market. But what's remarkable in this case is that uh, Delta were never going to transport domestic passengers. In other words, there was no. Um, provision in the application to onboard domestic passengers in OR Tambo and transport them to Cape Town International. We've canvassed uh, the domestic airline operators who have no objection to uh, to the, the pro- proposed routing. And remarkably, other tr- airlines have got approval for triangulated uh, routes. So that's a long way of saying, Anik, uh, I mean, we... we we simply do not understand uh, what has led to to this decision. I, of course, uh, uh, you know, ha- am taking this up robustly uh, with the the Minister of of, of Transport, Fakila Mbalula, who I spoke to uh, last week on this matter, and he has promised to review review the the decision and revert back to to the province. So at the moment, it's still in the air, but hopefully uh, there is a solution. And then so the, the, whole story the, the current, current state of play is Delta Airlines will start to fly Atlanta, uh, Johannesburg, Atlanta on the 1st of August. Uh, they have not withdrawn their application for the triangular uh, route. Uh, and I think it would be their intention, uh, provided the, the, the routing is approved, to bring on stream at the appropriate time the triangle route between uh, Atlanta, Johannesburg, and Cape Town. And certainly, I mean, we are going to do everything we can to ensure that uh, that uh, uh, approval is granted because it's, it's vital uh, in the long run for the e- economy in the Western Cape. The other story, big story uh, in your portfolio is Amazon choosing Cape Town for its new head office of Southern Africa and then all seemed good, 14 billion rand, and it's hitting blockages. Are you able to unblock that, or uh, is it a process that, that one has to go well, through? The, the Amazon uh, um, investment is of huge strategic importance uh, to the Western Cape. They're one of the biggest uh, employers uh, in the Western Cape, uh, and there have been uh, various sort of objections to uh, to the, the the new investment, but we are certainly, uh, together with the city of Cape Town, going to do everything that we can uh, to unblock that in uh, that uh, process and ensure that the investment goes ahead in the city of Cape Town. What does Amazon do from Cape Town? Well, I mean, Amazon is uh, an a huge uh, employer, and I recall uh, in the the middle of the the pandemic at the height of uh, the, if you like, despair about the state of the economy last year, uh, Amazon put out a statement to say that they were looking to employ uh, 3,000 new, uh, uh, new, uh, new hires. And these are particularly young people uh, in the tech sector. And so uh, they are 
an absolutely vital investment for the city of Cape Town and for the Western Cape. So it's tech-related. It's not moving boxes or like Amazon does in many other parts. Uh, of the this world. is Am- Amazon for, Web for Services, um, and uh, they, in the business of uh, you know supporting uh, various businesses with their uh, back-end tech, uh, but they are not, as you say, in the in the business of of moving boxes. Most importantly. From uh, my point of view, they are in the business of employing more people, especially young people in the Western Cape. David, over the past few years, you and your colleagues in the Democratic Alliance have, uh, well, been bemused at the former president, Jacob Zuma's ability to uh, to get away with as much as he has. But it seems like finally, uh, if if we believe uh, the the court ruling, he is going to jail. Uh, is this a cause for great celebration from his opponents, people like you, or could this be a constitutional crisis in, in the making, given that he's... he's uh, I think uh, it's a big moment. For years, uh, former President Jacob Zuma has argued that he would like his day in court uh, and that he doesn't fear prison. Well, uh, it's uh, all now come to fruition, and yes, I think he will be going uh, to prison. Uh, and I think that that is important because it establishes or reestablishes the rule of law in South Africa. There could, of course, uh, be some downside uh, because uh, it is possible that uh, his eventual imprisonment uh, will uh, intensify the rivalry, uh, possibly, I think, even the civil war within the governing party. And I think there could then be risks to the kind of reform momentum uh, that has been built up uh, in in recent months by uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa. David Mania is uh, on the cabinet in the Western Cape and it takes care of finance and economic affairs. Stephen Nathan is our guest co-host on a Tuesday. Stephen, good as always to be talking with you and plenty going on. Uh, President Jacob Zuma apparently going to jail for 15 months for contempt of court. I mean, that's the, the smallest of the, the issues that he has uh, been accused of, but I guess it's a start. Yes, without a doubt. It reminds one a little bit of how they got Al Capone. Uh, they couldn't get him for the bootlegging and uh, the violent crimes. I think they got him on tax evasion. But uh, what really matters is if you can uh, at least uh, bring uh, culprits to book somehow and I think that uh, the vast majority of South Africans would be really happy uh, to see Jacob Zuma uh, imprisoned for for some length of time. And maybe that uh, that also facilitates uh, 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 further investigations and hopefully convictions of you know many of the allegations that he has been accused of. You know, Stephen, you'd appreciate this. At the time of Nkantla, I did a little bit of work on what Nkantla actually cost South Africa. So I think the figure was around 250 million, but then I realized that the government was probably going to have to borrow to pay the 250 million. So it would borrow that money through bonds, issuing bonds, 20-year bonds into the marketplace. And by the time you got to the true cost, it came to something like a billion rand. This man has been expensive for South Africa. Uh, Without a doubt. I mean, there's so many, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of where do you look to focus on uh, the destruction that, uh, you know, that was caused under the, uh, the Zuma presidency. You know, we look, at, uh, we look at GDP growth where, you know, beforehand, uh, I think many of us forget we were actually running budget surpluses in South Africa. Now, obviously, it's not, you know, it's not just uh, the president and the government of the day. There are economic uh, factors at play. But uh, uh, under Trevor Manuel, uh, under his leadership of finance, we're actually running budget surpluses and our, and, our, and our debt was very low. So we were actually seen as a very responsible and attractive uh, emerging market uh, investment destination. You know, then you fast forward over uh, an almost 10-year period and you look at the, the, the devastation from an economic growth perspective, from an increase in unemployment perspective, from state capture, from uh, uh, load shedding, uh, as you say, and then you can look at Nklandla, some of the, you know, uh, those 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 sort of like outrageous uh, 
numbers. So it's very, you know, the big picture is really, really disturbing. And maybe on a more lighthearted note, I remember speaking to a friend of mine about Nklund about the outrageous cost. And he said, well, he said, you know, um, it's not so much the money that really irritated me. It's just that, you know, surely they could have done a better job with all that money. Surely they could have actually <laughs> improved it. So one has to also see the lighter side of it. But uh, no, the sheer, the sheer uh, economic impact, and we are paying for it because it's, 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 you know, it's much easier to destroy than it is to build. So it's easy to kind of get yourself in debt. It's easy to tear down. It's easy to, uh, to milk institutions, but it's much, much, much harder and takes much longer to get them back to their former glory. On the upside, uh, the Republic of No Consequences seems to at least have some consequences now. Without a doubt, I mean, I think, I think, I think that's a really important uh, message. You know, we have to we have to start to send strong messages of behaviour that is acceptable and behaviour that is unacceptable. And unfortunately, you know, during the Zuma presidency years, uh, the, there was there was there was really uh, no consequences and 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 no repercussions, and even uh, you know, no. No threats that if you were involved in state capture or incompetence or corruption, that there was going to be any any threat. So it just it just it you know it fell on deaf ears, and I think that was very demotivating for all South Africans. Uh, and obviously, from an international perspective, when you see that going on and you see the government uh, uh, turning a blind eye to that, then that also doesn't instill confidence. So definitely, what we're seeing now with the health minister. Uh, with uh, uh, the contempt of court with Zuma, uh, and even even spilling over into the private sector, uh, you know, institutions taking these transgressions a lot more seriously and holding people to account. Because I think, uh, you know, if you if you if you are in a lawless, uh, no consequence society, then it's much easier for for anyone to kind of turn a blind eye or to maybe operate in grey areas or do things that you wouldn't otherwise do if you operated in a society where you know that there were consequences. And you know that those around you are also uh, operating on a higher standard. So it's definitely a positive sign. It's, it's a good segue, that, into EOH. Uh, today, we hear that they're going after the former directors, Asher Bobot, who uh, at one point in time strode the Johannesburg business scene like a colossus. Uh, his company was uh, probably one of the highest rated of all stocks on the JSE. But there was always a smell around it and always concern that maybe this was not sustainable. And, of course, now we know the reason why. But, again, there's a consequence happening this time from Stephen von Koller. Uh, yes. I mean, Stephen uh, you know, definitely was thrown in the deep end. Uh, and even, I think, from his perspective, he, 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 he went in uh, knowing there were problems. But I think once he got inside the severity of the problems that he uncovered, and I think to his credit, you know, he followed through on that. So I think that, uh, uh, you know, it would have been easy to sort of uh, maybe gloss over things, maybe investigate to a certain level. But uh, Stephen, it seems as if he is, you know, really taking this uh, to its final conclusion. To So to ensure that he unearths uh, on behalf of EOH and all their stakeholders exactly, you know, what is going on and, and, and does a very thorough and proper job, which he which 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 they seem to be doing unfortunately it's a you know it's a really difficult one because firstly it costs a lot of money to do these investigations so you're paying you know lots of uh, expensive legal fees and 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 fees to unearth it uh, then secondly uh, it takes a lot of management time and executives time uh, to actually focus on these sort of things because you've got to be you know you don't want to make any mistakes uh, so you've got to be extra care you know extra careful you go into a lot of detail and that you know there's an opportunity cost because there's only so much time energy and resources you have in a day you know do we run the business do we think about strategy uh, you know and how much time do we devote to bring in those uh, those to account uh, you know that have uh, you know, allegedly transgressed against the company so there's that uh, and then I think thirdly there's the reputation issue uh, is that um, uh, you know it's 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 right and it's good to go after these people but it does uh, uh, stick to EOH. You know, it kind of keeps on reminding people about the challenges that EOH has as a company. And I think for for clients, uh, for staff as well, uh, you know, that is a challenge to go through. So it's it's you know, it's definitely not an easy path 
to follow. There's definitely consequences and some and some downside, but I think it's the right thing to do from a you know from a from a from a governance perspective and hopefully bringing those to account. But as I say, I think it's a bit of a balancing act when you're running you know when you're running a business because you've got lots of stakeholders uh, and 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 obviously one of the main priorities for EOH is to try and recover some of that shareholder value. So to try and you know, get the business uh, stabilized, profitable uh, and growing so that they can add value to shareholders, they can add value uh, to, to government as well by paying taxes because when companies are profitable, they pay a lot more in taxes uh, and hopefully also create employment. And that's it's a bit of a sad thing because EOH, uh, you know, I remember uh, under Ashabobit, they were one of the very first companies to aggressively go into uh, creating learnerships and uh, uh, job opportunities uh, for people. Uh, you know, and they created uh, uh, several hundred jobs uh, uh, with a, with a, uh, across their business. They gave opportunities for people without previous business experience. They gave them the opportunity of coming in into business. So it's, you know, it's sad in that way that, uh, uh, you know, a company that did good on that area, you know, overall has, 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 has kind of slipped up in, uh, in, in, in other ways. Yeah, I guess everything has got two sides, the two sides of Janus. But what makes me happy, and I think should for all South Africans, is that this is actually happening. In my own business career, I had two instances where there was outright theft from high-profile individuals. And the board of directors um, dissuaded us from going after these people publicly because it was just because of the reasons that you articulated earlier. And I also recall when I had a very short spell in banking where there was a full-on crook uh, and the the bank eventually decided not to pursue it to its ultimate objective because of the reputational risk. And that person, even today, some people think that that person is above board. So maybe the wheel has turned. Maybe um, if you get more of an EOH, more of a Ramaphosa attack on uh, corruption, you will get no more of the sweeping under the carpet, which has got to be good for society in the long term. I think you're exactly right. I mean, the, the, you know, the easier default option is to say, no, the cost and the reputational damage, uh, you know, it's really, you know, is it, is it, is it worth it? Um, and if everyone has that attitude, then what you're going to do is you're going to, you're going to be condoning and perpetuating this uh, and there are going to be no consequences. So, so I think you, uh, you know, I agree with you uh, completely. Is that if society as a whole lifts the bar and says that this is, you know, this behaviour is 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 unacceptable, um, then you know, then that hopefully sets a new standard, uh, and we'll all benefit. I mean, societies that are, you know, that are transparent, uh, that uh, that have accountability, that that uh, uphold. Uh, the law uh, and enforce the law are definitely much more prosperous than those than, than those that don't. So hopefully we are we kind of crossing the uh, the line from uh, the former to you know or you know being uh, 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 an unaccountable country with you know enormous problems to actually uh, hopefully bringing people to 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 account. So I agree that what Stephen and EOH have done and others is a very positive step in the right direction. Well, there's some surprise news today when 91, one of the big asset managers, decided to go public against the deal that has been causing so much controversy where Naspers is offering to change or to swap shareholding in Naspers for process. Delphine Govender uh, from Perpetua joins us now. Delphine, we spoke about this on the day that you and 35 other asset managers issued a public statement saying you thought it was a bad deal. Uh, and at the time, I recall you saying that 91 and a few of the other asset managers hadn't joined your group of 36 because they like to do their own thing. Well, uh, they've done their own thing. And for to the surprise of some people, they've actually come down on your side. Yeah, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm not surprised. And the fact that the larger firms... Um, you know, uh, didn't join the collaborative engagement, didn't necessarily mean they didn't agree with with the approach or the content. It was just the, the part that they were on. And so we respected, you know, that process and we respected also the way wheels turn at different institutions is different. Um, but um, one of the, I'm, I'm not sure if at the time I'd made the observation, we had several of them, you know, involved at, at some point in the engagement. It had been 
quite a, I mentioned quite a loosely arranged, less formalized collaboration and has probably paved the way for what should be much better uh, formalized collaboration going forward. But um, I think you would have seen last week or the week before, um, Alan Gray came out with a note saying why they felt that the, the transaction was problematic as well, um, which they published on their website. Um, you know, I'm sure Coronation has probably, you know, in their, with their interactions. So a lot of, a lot of these larger institutions were involved. Um, but have obviously chosen to to go their own route in terms of how to communicate um, their levels of opposition. And I think the hard part was um, having to get, you know, 40 managers to agree on what you're asking for. So are you asking for the transaction to be halted entirely? Are you asking uh, for the swap ratio, even if we have no say in the in the transaction being halted, which would be, I think, first prize, to be honest. Um, then the second say would be, would you change the swap ratio to be more in favor of NASPAS? But then it would not help process. Um, or, or what would you ask? Would you ask for better alignment in management incentives? And, and I think that was the tricky part. But I think where there was strong commonality was collective opposition to just the transaction, the proposed transaction. Stephen Nathan is our guest co-host on a Tuesday night. Stephen, um, were you surprised at all that 91 came out with the line that it has given that its founder is the lead independent director on the NASPERS stroke process board? Uh, well, I think that you know, NASPERS is too big to ignore. <laughs> so I think that as you know, all fund managers have to have some kind of a view on NASPERS, given its sheer dominance uh, on the on the JSE. So I think it would be sort of remiss, negligent, and 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 sort of expected that as a as a fund manager, you're going to have a view, and particularly on this transaction as well, because it is a uh, it is an important transaction uh, for NASPERS, and hence it's an important transaction for all South African investors. Uh, and also it's, 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 it's sort of in, it's entrenching a path. You know, the path has really been from NASPES simply owning 10 cents and other assets to NASPES uh, owning 10 cents via uh, 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 an offshore structure in Amsterdam process. And now you're putting in another structure and you're putting cross shareholdings. So it's a very, you know, it's, 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 it's much more difficult to unlock, to unwind these complex transactions. So, so I think uh, uh, all fund managers, uh, have a some kind of a duty to have a view on uh, on NASPES, uh and on the transaction. I don't think anyone's surprised, uh, uh, as Delphine has said. I mean, it seems as if the vast majority of fund managers agree that this is not the best way to unlock value for shareholders. The market has been telling us that it's, this is not the best way to unlock value for shareholders. So, so it's not a surprise. I guess what would be a surprise, or not a surprise, what would be interesting is to to see how the directors believe that this is a better way to unlock value uh, than most of the fund managers and the market believe, but that's clearly not not something to answer in one line. After the results, I spoke to Bob van Dijk, and he was completely committed to the fact that he's going to continue with the transaction, no matter what the asset managers have said. And he said, well, we have also brought out a couple of statements, and and we will talk to you, but there was no give uh, from what I could understand. Has there been give subsequent to that? Look, I think, Alec, I mean, just from my perspective, they've been very public, Bob Bob and, and Basil, the CFO, that they've worked something like 18 to 20, I'm not actually sure the exact time, but it's over a year, well over a year um, on this transaction. I think they used a number of north of 10 different options um, that they had been working on, and then they finally settled on this one. So... I'm sure if you were, if we were in their shoes and we had to, you know, do a bit of a role reversal, it would be incredibly hard to now backtrack after having invested all of this time, energy, effort, you know, advisory fees, you know, having sold it, I would assume, to their own board of, of well, boards of non-execs. Um, and then to now say, actually, we're cowering to uh, shareholder pressure. In fact, one of my questions in a follow-up engagement with them is, in one of the scenarios, why are, you know, are they surprised? Because it seems as though there is quite a lot of surprise by the shareholder reaction. So was there not a scenario that they would have, you know, um, predicted that they would not have been this surprised by the, by the sheer, you know, extent of the unified opposition? Um, and for some reason, the, in their minds, it looks a lot simpler than it appears to the vast majority of people that are opposed to it. Um, but it's also, I think, the the, the real sticking point. Uh, well, there are two sticking points. The first is that um, they are have this singular reason for this transaction, and which is unwavering, which is reduce NASPERS's weight on the JSE. Full stop. 
Um, and the rationale behind it is that they feel it's you know irresponsible for the weight of NASPERS to rise on the JSE because it's not possible for fund managers to kind of mirror that in, in their portfolios or, or, or get close to it. Um, so you have this kind of philosophical kind you know loggerheads on day one. So fund managers don't buy that as 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 the as the reason. Um, and then the second kind of sticking point is that we have these identical sets of directors on both boards. Um, and here you have a transaction which only really needs to be approved by the process shareholders, of which, as we know, NASPERS is the dominant one, with a shareholding, which I think Steve was mentioning as I came on. Um, and so, and then you have the NASPERS, you know, directors, but they they are exactly one and the same. So depending, you know, it's, it's incredibly hard if you're predominantly a NASPERS shareholder to believe that that same board is acting. I, I'm, I have full respect that in their professional sense that they would be, as, as Mervyn King says, you know, putting the one soul in and then taking the soul out and then putting the next soul of the company in. Um, but I, I can't imagine that that would be possible. So even if, there was a scenario that as NASPERS directors, we convinced, they were convinced that maybe there is a better ratio to make this transaction more equitable. Once they step into their process, then they're not protecting the process shareholder interests. I, I can't imagine, you know, how difficult that might must be to not just be independent, but also be seen to be independent in that sense. Okay, so now for small shareholders, and we've got NASPERS in the business portfolio. There are two things that are, that, that are bothering me. And the one I've got a very deep discount, a bigger discount on NASPERS than on process. So it makes all the sense in the world for a small shareholder to do the conversion. So put that one side. But a bigger worry that I have now is that the Chinese government is going after its internet companies. They've just taken, I think, $80 billion off the value of Alipay. They're now attacking Tencent and uh, Baidu as well. And that cannot be good for NASPERS stroke process into the longer term. So when you look at those two as a shareholder of this group, it's almost like while we're fighting over uh, the swap ratios, the actual value of the company is being attacked by the, the Chinese Communist Party. What's your thought on that one? So the first point, I think, is that the risk that you're highlighting is a risk that's pretty much been there for 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 many years. Um, it became more heightened, I'd say, in the last you know five or so years, particularly as the as as visibility and transparency over the whole VIE structure, which is you know which is what is called in which the ten cent stake is held through um, the Hong Kong listing, became more known to investors. Um, and in fact, you know, we hadn't been shareholders, you know, actually in NASPERS for a while. And one of the reasons was that we felt that the, ironically, the discount um, to which the share was trading relative to its NAV was not really sufficiently um, giving you enough. It wasn't accounting sufficiently for these risks that you take on when you invest in NASPERS, not, notwithstanding the amazing underlying asset that Tencent is. There are risks. You don't actually own the underlying, you know, assets um, as, as the NASPERS shareholder because you own it through this VIE structure whose legality has never been tested in the, and, and, and the Chinese government could change their mind at, at any point in time. Um, and so when the discount was around, you know, 10, 20, 20% level, then you thought, well, it's a normal holding company discount you know, 25, 30, perhaps it, it, it's it's rewarding your accounting for all these risks that you take. Um, but then, as we know, in the last several years, that discount widened and widened. So in short, I guess what I'm saying is that these are known risks. These are not unknown risks. Um, and they, and to some extent, they, um, they also um, point to the fact that the discount will never close completely or is unlikely to ever close completely. Um, and that one needs to absorb that there will be a level of discount. The point, though, is that, 55 is just way too high. Um, and, 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 and definitely, you know, perhaps, you know, 25 or 20 is the number it will close to, but that's still significant upside from here. Um, so it's, it's, it is vexed. And I think what, what you're, what you're getting when you're investing, you know, a rand or 10 or 20 or, or in, into, into NASPERS is it's, it's, you know, foots toots it's all in um and by that i mean is that you, you're signing up for this governance structure which is is dubious you're signing up for and as dubious for the reasons i've highlighted you're signing up for you know the vie and the chinese government risks um on the on the negative side of the coin but on the positive side of the coin you, you're getting access to this incredibly fast growing um asset that is is no in no other way possible to get access to unless you invest directly so 
it's really two sides of a coin and, and every investor um, has to balance it. My guess, the, the challenge has been, it's also been the biggest single asset in the South African market. So it's been impossible to ignore. I think that our hope is that they would see that there clearly is a disconnect between the way they are positioning their actions. If, if the, the, you know, if the ultimate goal is just one thing, which we hope they would also have as the ultimate goal. And I think this is the challenge because an institutional investor, you know, like ourselves, um, is interested in, you know, and we, we create an investment case for why we invest in a stock. Um, in the NASPAS example, the investment case was very premised on the discount unlocking. Um, and the question is, does management care about our investment case? You know, does, does that matter to them or, or is what matters to them building a business, you know, for, for the next 30, 40 years that, you know, looks like a venture capital fund that, that might eventually come to pass, you know, finding the next 10 cent, you know, if, if it ever happens. So they might not be as interested. My sense is that they are more aligned to wanting to unlock that discount. Um, however, the hard part then is trying to understand exactly why they be- is, is the rationale for some of the actions they take, if they are indeed aligned. Well, you've been with the team here of Biz News for our Power Hour. We'll be back in your company again, same time, same place, tomorrow. Until then, from me, Alec Hogg, and our team, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.